Welcome back to the What's Up and What's Next podcast, the greatest podcast of all times. Today I am joined by a very good friend of mine. I've known this person for about six years. He is absolutely amazing. He is everyone's favorite DJ. <laughs> he is also, more importantly, everyone's favorite doctor now. Um, and I would like to welcome Rahim Ismail to the show, also known as DJ Raz. Um, welcome, Raz. Honoured to be on your podcast. Um, this is really, really exciting. Um, I'm really grateful you reached out, mate. Uh, can't wait to get into it. Yes, let's get into it. I, I like that. I like the, the energy. It's good. Um, obviously, I've already dropped <laughs> two, two sort of hints. I've said DJ, I've said doctor. People are now wondering, wait, how does that happen? Is that like a <laughs> doctor by day, DJ by night? Is it the other way around? But more importantly, the headline that comes to my mind every time I, I think about you is from DJ to doctor. And before I even get into it, the first thing I would like to say is um, thank you so much. And a message to everyone that's listening to this is thank you to everyone for doing their part. Thank you to all the key workers. Thank you to the cleaners. Thank you to the NHS staff, nurse, doctors. Thank you to the delivery drivers. Thank you to all the key workers that are doing their best and doing their part to make sure we, as as we are doing our best to go through it together, massive, massive thank you. Also, thank you to everyone at home that is actually following the social distancing guidelines, that is listening to the government, that is doing their best to also do their bit. So massive, massive thank you. My heart goes out to everyone that may have been affected by this in one way or another. Just know that it always takes a storm before the rainbow comes out. So things will be better on the on the other side, I'm sure of it. So we'll get to it together. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raz, uh, for doing your bit. And with that said, tell us about about, about, about yourself. How did this happen from DJ to, to doctor? What's, what's going on? <laughs> well, I guess some people also go with the, with the headline, doctor by day, DJ by night, sometimes <laughs> the other way around, depending on the event. <laughs> so it's a little bit of both. Um, but yeah, you're right. So I, I learned how to DJ in my gap year before university and it took off massively when I kind of was there getting residencies at Ministry of Sound with a brand called Milkshake. And I also currently spin for the UK's largest Asian club brand, Jesse Beats UK. Um, so it's really, it's really been nice to be able to play with those and it's given me some opportunities to also play abroad in other countries as well. That's awesome. Let me just interrupt you right there. Sorry. So for those of you who are wondering and probably want to find out more about DJ Raz, you can find him on Instagram and on Facebook as the DJ Raz. Please go and search the DJ Raz and I will guarantee you, you will not be disappointed. There's a lot of cool DJ stuff and a lot of medicine stuff as well on his page. So sorry, Raz, I had to plug you in. Uh, I just think it's important. <laughs> Thanks for the plug, mate. I love that. Um, and I just, I was just thinking, as you mentioned that, uh, I remember being with you when I was playing out in Dubai and also in Lisbon uh, not too long ago. So that was a really fun time. Yeah. But anyway, cool back time. to the question. Um, so yeah, I'm also a doctor. I studied at St. George's University of London in South London, and I've worked in North London for a few years uh, in hospitals there working in mental health, surgical units, and and also medical wards. And hopefully in August this year, I'll be starting anaesthetic training. And an anaesthetist is someone who works alongside a surgeon in an operating theatre, in intensive care environments, which is quite topical, pre-hospital care, and also things like pain clinics as well. So a little bit more about me. 
Some people might not know this, but in my free time, I really enjoy working on projects focused towards positive youth development within my community, which is where we first actually met Eric and uh, really good times. And mm-hmm. another thing that pe- some people might not know about me is that I occasionally also like to play the saxophone, which I've picked up a few more times actually since being at home in, with the whole lockdown situation. I see. So first of all, that's shocking. <laughs> I did not know you play the saxophone and I've known you for six years. I'm not sure if I should be ashamed as a friend for not knowing this or not. Oh, Eric, you learn something new every day about, about me, don't you? <laughs> yes, you do. That is the quote <laughs> of the day. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to basics. There's a lot of information out there uh, about COVID-19. However, I want to go back to basics and I want to work it out from there so we can have a bit more of a broad conversation about it. So sure. first question, what is COVID-19? And how is it different from a conventional flu? So a few different points here. Going back, going right to the beginning, COVID-19 is an infectious disease and it's caused by a novel coronavirus. That means that there are coronaviruses that exist, but this is one that we've never seen uh, quite like before. That if you want to think of what a coronavirus looks like, imagine a tennis ball with spikes all around it. So you put lots of toothpicks all over the ball. That's essentially what a kind of an image of it would look like. And coronaviruses have been around for a long time. They played, they played a central role in MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was a pandemic around 2012, and also SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which was a pandemic that happened in around 2002. So in the UK, Public Health England have put out a case definition of what COVID-19 is. And it's essentially characterized as a, as a respiratory illness which can give you a temperature above 37.8 degrees Celsius, a new continuous cough, and that's defined either as a lot more for an hour or three or more coughing episodes in 24 hours. And something really interesting, as of the 18th of May uh, this year, they added an additional bit to that case definition. So a loss or change in normal sense of taste or smell, which is really interesting because working in ED, we're kind of seeing some patients come in and they said that they've got, they had these symptoms alongside you know, a temperature or a cough. And it wasn't really recognized officially before, but it's kind of made its way into the case definition. And it's really cool because that's how fast we're learning about this disease. We're honestly learning something new every single day. It's really important also to know that most people with COVID-19 will experience mild to moderate symptoms. Some people might be asymptomatic. However, others might with might experience quite a serious illness, especially those with underlying medical conditions or the elderly. For example, those with weakened immune systems, have diabetes, respiratory illnesses, and the UK government has published a whole list uh, that's been posted on the NHS website. So really, really important to look out for that. In terms of your second part of the question, how is it different from the conventional flu? Well, this is something that it was quite tricky at the at the beginning because we thought, you know, are these people coming with flu? What is this? Um, so it's really easy to get it confused. It appears in the same way with lethargy, fever, a cough, and a runny nose, but it's caused by a different virus, the influenza virus. And identification is really important. So the swab testing that you've been seeing maybe on the news or on social media, that's what tells us what kind of disease the person might have. So, yeah, it can be confusing, especially when you're unwell, because the symptoms do sometimes look the same. I see. 
but there is a lot of information on it on the um, the NHS and government websites and a lot of people posting out like yourself posting out from reliable sources so we can find out more about it now the question at play here is how can we avoid prevent or protect ourselves from it so to what avoid prevent and protect yourselves they all come in kind of a bundle of messages washing your hands regularly it stops the spread of the virus and it kills the virus by affecting its envelope layer Avoid touching your face because that's a really easy way for, for the virus to transmit from a surface in close into your respiratory tract. Social distancing is huge. And it's been a key message from the UK government. And now we've heard that being outdoors is safer than being in smaller out, uh, indoor spaces. So try to be outside if you are if you are going to meet people outside of your pe- the people that you live with um, in an open environment. And the final bit is seeking help if you need it. Follow the advice that's been posted up on the NHS website or if you're in another country, whatever your health authority is telling you, it's really important to follow your uh, government and local guidelines. Thank you. I appreciate the information that you're giving out to us so far. I want to get into something a bit more tricky, which is what to do if you have got symptoms of COVID-19 or what to do after testing positive. Okay, so this is a little bit tricky, so bear with me. But if you do test positive, you should self-isolate at home for seven days and you should continue to do so until you don't have a fever. If you are living with other people at home, then you should self-isolate for seven days and continue to do so uh, if you have a fever. But everyone else in your household needs to isolate for 14 days from the first day that, that you get symptoms. So it's a little bit confusing and Eric, there's a really great guide that Public Health England have uh, posted online. Is there any way we could share that with the listeners? Yes, I'll make sure to put it on the episode podcast show notes and we'll also share it on our social media. I'm more than happy to do that. Wicked. And so if you if you are isolating at home for 14 days, the rationale is that for what we know from COVID-19 is that you might be asymptomatic for a few days or you might not have caught it if you are living with that person. So the 14 days is essentially a buffer for uh, you to catch the, uh, to have the coronavirus, but also make sure that you are still self-isolating so you aren't spreading that risk to anyone else. So the 14 days is just like a a safe way. It's just, uh, you know, 14 days is just to be safe as possible. Exactly, yeah, and that's why why they published it. Uh, So another question that I'd like to get into is an acronym that has come to life, PPE. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What is PPE? PPE isn't the subject that you that you might study at university, but in the context of COVID-19, it stands for personal protective equipment. And in my eyes, there are four main things that make that make this up. The first is a waterproof gown. It's it's a water repellent water repellent gown because COVID-19 is spread through droplets in the air. You then have a mask. People might have heard of the FFP3 masks and you use them in a hospital when you're working with, with patients who, have a con- who are confirmed to have COVID-19. And to wear those masks, you have to have specific mask fitting uh, before wearing them to be safe. Another piece is the face shield. And it's essentially a visor that you put over your face to stop any uh, droplets entering your respiratory tract. And the final bit is the gloves. Really, really important. They protect your hands and they're usually put on in such a way that when you're removing them, your risk of infection is reduced. 
And it's really cool. So the terms that we use when we're putting on or taking off the uh, PPE equipment. So if you to put it on, we call it donning. So you don the PPE. And then when you take it off, you doff it. And there are specific ways that you have to do that to, again, minimize the uh, risk of spreading any infection. There are other little bits of PPE, such as hair nets and goggles, which are used in some settings. But again, there's lots of published advice from Public Health England. So it's really important to follow those if you're in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And additionally, the government's really urging people to wear face coverings and simple masks uh, outside for the general public. And that's essentially to stop the spread of the virus. If you have it and you don't know, you might cough and then it's, it will spread. If, but if you're wearing a face mask or a face covering, then it reduces that risk or likelihood that it can be transmitted. So yeah, really, really important stuff, PPE. Awesome. That is absolutely important. The information you've given us so far is unbelievably important. Thank you so much. And that ties really nicely with your NHS experience, which is something I would like to get into. You have been at the front line in the NHS. You have been helping out a lot. And I would really, really like for us to speak about that experience. I know there is always two sides to, to a coin. There's a positive side and a negative side. But I would like you to tell us, if you can, share your experience being at the front line in the NHS. So I'm going to rewind a little bit to the beginning of my medical career. So as I mentioned in the introduction, I had started working in hospitals in North London, and that was in a medical, surgical and mental health setting. Once I completed that, I landed a six month job in intensive care at my local hospital. And it's really topical because within my last week of working on that unit, I remember being part of the admitting team for our first COVID-19 patient. And at the beginning, there was so much confusion on what this was. Nobody knew specifically how to treat it. But what we did on the unit, which I really admired all kind of the decision making, we worked from first medical principles to see how we could do our best for that patient with the resources that we had. Once I'd finished working in, the, at, in that intensive care unit, I started working at the Nightingale Hospital, which you might have heard, uh, heard from on uh, social media or from the newspaper or the news. And essentially what it was, was a temporary hospital used to help offload some of the critical care need, in, specifically in London. It was a great experience working for staff from different backgrounds. And we're really thankful that we didn't actually need to use it for too long. We only used it as a temporary interim measure to help offload some of that uh, critical care capacity in London. So I guess overall, I think it's really important to look at my experience in two ways. It's a brutal virus. It's really sad because currently we don't have a cure. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have any really solid evidence-based treatments that we're using at the minute. We're doing lots of trials. Also, the, the other side where you're having to have difficult conversations with families and relatives. And as a doctor on the front line, sometimes that can be quite difficult, despite having training for it at medical school. Because at the end of the day, this is a human life that you're uh, speaking about. So those conversations might be informing of next steps of treatment, uh, whether they might be moving to a ward or intensive care, conversations about resuscitation or DNAR, and some, some of the listeners might have been involved in those. And also in some cases, end of life decision, which is again, really, really taxing as a clinician on the front line. And of course, all of it's done in a professional and respectful way. I think it's really important to look at any experience from the other side. So the positive stuff that's come out of this so far Honestly, working at NHS Nightingale, I've never seen such good teamwork. 
none of us really knew each other before going into the setting. And that's from the critical care nurses, the doctors, the healthcare assistants, the pharmacists. There were so many different people coming there to help um, provide best outcomes for the patient and help support this initiative. And I thought that experience was uh, kind of quite, quite impactful on me uh, in a positive way, just to see the way that everyone's really coming together. The other real big positive that I've noticed is that the NHS changed, honestly, within a matter of days to meet the demand for this virus. And being in an A&E department, you see that all the flows have changed, the flow of patients, the way that services are provided have changed, the hospital layout has changed. It's, it's incredible the effort that the NHS has gone through to make some of these changes in the hospital, which you might not see if you're on the outside, but being on the inside, honestly, these are, these are massive. And I really hope that the NHS continues to learn from this experience and make further changes. So it sounds like a mixed, experience. mixed, mixed emotions and mixed feelings in the experience. There's always, there's always an upside and an outside, right? There's two sides to a coin. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing the NHS experience. And once again, like I said before, uh, thank you for doing your bit. Thank you to everyone. Um, like I said, key workers, everyone that's respecting the, the guidelines, everyone that's doing their bit. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Roz. I thought it would be interesting for us to play a little game. Um, I feel like there is a lot of misconceptions about COVID-19. There's a lot of information. Some things may be right, some things may be wrong. And I, I've compiled the list. I've looked online, I've researched, okay. I've compiled the list based on social media. Uh, let's call it trends. Uh, I've compiled the list. I've got assess statements. I'm going to read out the statements. And I'm going to ask you if it's a myth or a fact. And you can choose to answer that or not. But what I would like you to do is at least comment on the statement and tell me why sure. that statement is a myth or a fact or true or false or semi-true, semi-false, doesn't matter. So let's start. Is it a myth or a fact? First statement, viruses don't do well with the heat. COVID-19 will go away once the summer is here. Is this a myth or a fact and why? It's been really hot outside recently and I've really enjoyed sitting in the garden, setting up our barbecue as well, <laughs> or even out going for a walk. But to answer your question, unfortunately, I think thinking that COVID-19 is going to go away in the summer is quite wishful thinking. I think we'll really see this virus pandemic continue into summer. And if you look to other countries like Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, where it is quite hot, you can still see that COVID-19 is capable of transmitting in hotter and humid climates. They've, they've also, to manage their pandemic, they've had to introduce a lot of other measures um, similar to social distancing to keep control of the virus. So in summary, I think this is a myth. Yeah, we've seen from, from history as well and other, other sort of situations similar to this, the heat in the summer doesn't always, uh, it's not a straight equation. Um, as to whether or not uh, it will stay or it will go away. We'll only find out when it comes to it. And uh, it's wishful thinking, I think. I agree. So next one, and this is a very popular one. If I can hold my breath for 10 seconds without discomfort, I do not have COVID-19. Is this a myth or a fact and why? So this one was such a viral trend that the WHO, the World Health Organization, published something in response to this, which I thought was quite phenomenal for a trend that was going around on WhatsApp. But if you really look at it, the only way to tell if you've got COVID-19 is with a PCR antigen test. 
And the only way to tell if you have some immunity, and I say those in inverted commas, is by having an antibody test. So just because you can hold your breath doesn't really matter with diagnosing COVID-19. In fact, some people might even be asymptomatic and able to hold their breath. So simple answer, myth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, I don't think people should be using that as a measure of determining whether or not they have COVID-19. So to everyone that every morning holds their breath for 10 seconds, uh, you could probably stop doing that because it's not actually a, a factual measure to do, to do it. And I apologize to disappoint you uh, <laughs> in this way. Next statement. Wearing masks is pointless as when you have to remove the mask, you will end up contaminating yourself anyways. Is this a myth or a fact and why? Masks are really useful for reducing the transmission of this disease, especially because it's airborne. And they must use, be used in conjunction with cleaning your hands. So you need to wash your hands before you put the mask on. You need to wash your hands after you put the mask on. Another really big thing about masks is that you really shouldn't adjust the mask when it's on your face. If you're touching, if you touch a surface and then you're touching the mask to readjust it, that's quite close to your nose and your mouth, which is at the beginning of your respiratory tract. And therefore you might be self-contaminating if you do do if you do, do that. To minimize any risk when you're removing the mask, you should remove it from behind and discard it into the bin as a single use. And then you should, and then you should wash your hands either with soap and water or alcohol gel. Awesome. So masks are useful. You just need to take the necessary precautions to make sure that you're maximizing the benefits of wearing a mask. I think that's what I heard here today. Next one would be coronavirus lives in the throat. So <laughs> if I drink loads of water, the virus is pushed down into the stomach where the acid will kill it. <laughs> is this a myth or a fact and why? Dude, this was a, another huge viral trend that was going around on social media, on WhatsApp, on Facebook. But look, drinking water is quite important generally for your health. But unfortunately, it's too simplistic to be able to kill the virus. I really hope that people aren't convinced that drinking water every 15 minutes or whatever the trend was isn't, is going to cure them. The only real way of reducing your risk of coronavirus is to wash your hands and to socially distance. That's until we receive a vaccine or some medicines that can help us with the treatment of this. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I agree and I don't know why this went popular. I think what the happened from... Yeah, what, what must have happened from this is the increased trips to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you uh, there. Yeah. Next one. If I eat lots of oranges, I will be immune to COVID-19. Is this a myth or a fact and why? Ooh, okay. So oranges are important and great source of vitamin C and fiber in a healthy diet. Great for all, all round general functioning of your body. But vitamin C, which is probably what most people are thinking of when they think of oranges, can contribute to a normal immune system, which is regularly fighting off viruses and bacteria. But right now, there isn't an evidence-based link that vitamin C directly helps become immune to COVID-19. But having said that, there is a trial which is expected to finish in September this year, which I guess is a real demonstration of the efforts that people are going to to help in the um, fight against coronavirus. But in summary, I would probably say for now that this is a myth, 
<laughs> no, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I mean, as as far as 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 long as as long as there's no factual information about it, which there isn't, you can't associate one to the other. So I definitely agree with you. Next one: hand sanitizers are better than soap and water. Is this a myth or a fact? Why? Okay, so both of those things have different ways of working to immobilize the virus, but both really important. Soap and water and hand sanitizer are effective. And essentially the way they work is, imagine you've got a virus and it's coated in this layer. If we go back to the tennis ball we spoke about earlier, the outer layer is something for the scientists out there called a lipid bilayer. And when you use soap and water, you essentially break down that layer and therefore the virus can't survive because there's nothing to hold it or, or keep it safe. So soap and water is really important. And I would recommend that you are using hand sanitizer when water isn't available. And hand sanitizers must be above 60% alcohol to be effective. When you wash your hands with soap and water, you must wash for about 20 seconds. To get good coverage. Yeah, I agree. Both of them are just as good as each other. They're the weapons or they're the, the tools that we have at our disposal to use and make sure we are trying to keep as safe as possible. Next one is, coronavirus only affects the elderly and people who have underlying health conditions. Is this a myth or a fact and why? We sort of covered this a little bit earlier, but it affects everyone. Older people can be at risk and the government have published some guidelines in the UK saying who might be more at risk than others. But in essence, to answer your question, it affects everyone so this is a myth i agree it is it is a myth if i catch the coronavirus once i'll never catch it again is this a myth or a fact why that's a great question and i think it's playing on the minds of a lot of people it's not really true but let's say that with a caveat for now there's still a load that needs to be discovered about the immunity towards covid19 there is a specific antibody that we do look at which the government are using in their public health system to reduce restrictions in the UK. And that antibody is IgG. When you looked at other infections for viruses, bacteria, this specific antibody is produced by your body and it determines how long your immunity essentially lasts. I've actually recently posted something up on my Instagram, which explains my experience of having this antibody test, which I purchased privately. And it speaks a lot more about the types of tests that you might be looking for and also how they work. But I guess coming back to the question, if you look at the other types of corona, human coronaviruses out there, a few of them only produce short-term immunity, some lasting for 45 weeks, which actually means that if you have it, let's say, in 2020, in 2021, you might be able to catch it again. But we really, really don't know because it is too early on in this disease. I would therefore then advise that you err on the side of caution in terms of thinking that you're immune because you have a positive antibody test. It's really interesting. So in the UK, they published something towards the end of May saying that they were rolling out antibody testing widely for healthcare workers. And I'm sure that will be part of their wider plan into helping the pandemic in the UK. But I guess let's watch the space, see what happens with it. So I guess the key message is Everything's still in development. There's no actual confirmation on this on this statement, which is fine. Last statement for, for our game. I think we've had a good run at this game. 
Is quarantine, lockdown and social distancing a simple overreaction? Is this a myth or a fact? Why? So this has been a topic that's been debated widely across the world, not only just the UK, but in the UK, here are the facts. Right now, we don't have a widely available effective vaccine. We don't have any evidence-based treatments, really. So if we were to forego the lockdown and quarantine measures, there would be a really large number who would fall seriously or critically unwell, which would therefore then overwhelm the health facilities and not we wouldn't be able to provide care for those who those who need it when you look towards sort of all of these lockdown me- measures it's really important to understand the r value which has been really widely talked about especially at the daily government briefings and that is the reproduction value of the virus when you consider the r value if it's a, if it's above one that means that the growth of the virus and spread of it is exponential but if it's below one, it means that the rate of the virus is spreading at a really low rate and not infecting as many people as it, as it would if it was above one. When you consider the R value, it's really important to understand, understand the prevalence as well, which means the number of cases in a certain area. But here's the tricky thing. With COVID-19, there are so many people who are asymptomatic but still have the virus. So it's really difficult to estimate what the R value is. The way that the government are using this is to guide how many people could be infected at one point and in a certain area. So it's really an important part of the government's policy to figure out lockdown measures. So to answer your question, really, it's not an overreaction at all. I think it's really important for everyone to socially distance, follow the rules, wash their hands and not an overreaction. Yeah, I agree. I think if we can do our very best to try and stay safe and keep keep ourselves and our loved ones as well safe, which is really important, then we should be doing that, right? And like like we've mentioned before, this is something new. No one really knows this. We're discovering, we're going to it together, which is the key word, together, which is how we so will be... Uncertainty really yeah exactly and it's like you said some people might have it and might not have symptoms of it which is so scary so definitely definitely advise that please respect and follow those guidelines because they are there to help us now that finishes our game but i still have one or two last questions for you i've had recently a lot of people reach out to me they've spoken to me and i've also seen around a lot of people who are starting to feel some type of way and when i mean some type of way i mean frustrated, anxious, just all this commotion of emotions just running through. And from my point of view, I wanted to ask you, what message and what advice would you give to these people? I mean, if you're having to stay at home because of coronavirus, it's really important to take care of your mind as well as your body. Is that something that you were kind of getting messages about? Yeah, exactly. It's, It's because we need to look after both sides, right? So I guess if you're staying at home in kind of cooped up, it is really easy to feel bored, frustrated, lonely, and even quite concerned about other people. But I would say that it's okay to feel like this. Everyone really reacts in their own different way to challenging events and uncertainty. Like we've discussed, uh, everything is really uncertain right now. But it's really important to remember that although you're staying at home and it might be difficult, you are helping protect yourself and you're helping protect other people by doing so so 
I've come prepared. I think it's really important to look after your mental well-being when you're at home. So a few top tips, have a routine in your day-to-day life, set a bedtime, set a waking up time. When you're listening to news covering the coronavirus, again, set yourself a time limit, only use credible sources like the government pages, the NHS website, and information that you can fact check. Then another thing is to think about things you can do to keep your mind active, for example, cooking, reading, online learning. And finally, a really important bit of exercising. So whether it's going for a daily run, a walk, or playing some sport at home, whatever you can do, try and get some exercise. What is the final message for everyone just generally listening to this right now? I mean, if you've got this far in the podcast, you probably have realised that there's so much uncertainty out there for COVID-19. So my take-homes would be look after yourself mentally, physically and socially. Look after other people. Be kind. When you're at home and out and about, follow the guidelines published by the NHS government or if you're elsewhere in the world, wherever you're, whatever your health authority is telling you. If you work in healthcare, huge, massive thank you from me for everything that you're doing to support your colleagues and also the patients who are coming through. And a message for everyone. Remember that your doctors and health professionals are there for you. So if you need help, please make sure that you are asking for it from your GP, your specialist, your hospital doctors. And that's for COVID-19 and also other health problems as well. So those are a few of my take-home messages. But the main one, really look after yourself and look after other people. And final question for you. What's up and what's next? I'm really going to enjoy my next few days that I have off. And I'm going to really try my best to have a barbecue at home tonight. Otherwise, I'm back to A&E for a few more shifts this month and really looking forward to starting anaesthetic training in August. Awesome. Exciting things ahead of you. Uh, Really, really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for today, Raz. Really appreciate it. And if you guys have enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to listen to the next podcast to find out what's up and what's next.